If you're looking to get your mojo working at work or at play, then you've come to the right place. Kick back, grab a pen and paper, and relax with the Mojo Radio Show. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on me. Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. we got a double bunger on the line for you this week. <laughs> Big show, two guests. In fact, we've got three guests, a, a duo and a solo. Mm. Both great content, both great interviews, very enjoyable, lots of great takeouts. If you're a regular Mojoite, welcome back, guys. Nice to have you with us. Thanks for the download button yet again. If you're brand new to the show, what Robbo and I do is the Mojo Radio Show is about helping you get your mojo working in and out of work. We find interesting people, just like we have today. We talk to them, extract their opinions, their ideas, their tips and tools for helping you get your mojo working. We've got a great show ahead. We're not going to dilly-dally, but let's say good day to the guy driving the big red bulldoze, it's called, <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. I've upgraded. I've upgraded from the beige bus to the red you bulldozer. You have, haven't you? Yeah. I'm, go- I'm going hard. I'm actually driving the leopard skin couch this morning, I've got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Just kicked back. <laughs> um, folks, we had some good news uh, during the week. Hmm. Bytes.com, which is kind of a platform that hosts a lot of international podcasts, mm. uh, have invited us to join as they like our lifestyle very tight, very well programmed. <laughs> what show are you show? listening to? <laughs> I think they, I think the comment is, you guys are so loose, you belong over here. So, um, yeah. but it's really good, and it's spelt B I T E S Z dot com. That's the one. They got some cracking shows from around the world. We're now part of the stable. And uh, that's good. It just means that we're on the right track and we're doing yeah. good stuff. Can I just say quickly, if if if, um, if science and space get your mojo going, they've got a couple of awesome space programs floating around, worth well worth a listen to. So, um, yeah, if that sort of stuff floats your boat, make sure you jump on there and have a listen. They're awesome. Very good. Mm. Now, I was thinking about resolutions. You know how a couple of weeks ago you talked about your New Year's resolution mm-hmm. of getting back to woodwork and getting on the tools? Indeed. How's that going, mate? That's going really well. I So far I've knocked out the uh, collection box that I began for the rugby club and I've started on a little table and chairs for Sophie. So you're doing it weekly as you had promised yourself? Yep. Every Saturday afternoon I've put aside an hour or two Sweet. for myself, yeah. Nice. Mm. It, it, the, the reason I ask the question is because I, I've just been thinking about resolutions. Yep. And I went online to have a think and a look at some of the stats behind resolutions. And because our audience now is growing pretty dramatically in the United States and in the United Kingdom, mm. I went to both those markets to have a look. Mm. Now, in the United States, 8% of people keep their resolutions successfully. 8%? 8%. Wow. Right? Wow. And I took this off the Statistic Brain Research Institute. I love a good statistic. Right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really good. And I thought, well, I wonder what it's like in the UK. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, in the UK, The Guardian ran a story, and I'll put all these links in the show notes, The Guardian ran a story saying that after one month or less, 66% of UK adults had failed to keep their New Year's resolutions. Wow. <laughs> so almost 7 out of 10 yeah. 
by the end of January is going, yeah, no, nah, yeah. it's off. Yeah, no, nah, forget it. Or or the or the complete opposite, just haven't figured out a way to work it into their diary or haven't been bothered to figure out a way. Yeah, and, I, and because of this, and I have been pondering it for a little while now, and I thought being in February, because I don't like doing stuff around resolutions in January because it's so typical, and I don't like doing what everybody else does. Mm. But I thought being February and now being into the year, we're back into the grind, kids are back at school, we're back into our routines. Mm. Mm. Uh, I was having a conversation with a mate of ours, uh, Blake Beattie, who is an expert on not just strategy and also one of our highest rating guests of all time on the Mojo Radio Show, but he also wrote a book and is an expert on goal setting. And I was having a chat to Blake on the phone about resolutions and he had a perspective. Can you just give him a quick call and bring him up? He's... um, I just want to have a chat to him about what he thinks about resolutions. All right, hang on. Let me dial up old Skype here. Hang on. Hello, Blake Beatty. Blake, it's GB and Robbo for the Mojo Radio Show, buddy. Hey, Robbo. Hey, Gary. How you doing? Good, man. We are really, really well. We, um, we just thought, you know, we talked last week about resolutions. We are recording the show today and we thought we'd just take up a couple of minutes of your time to get your perspective on New Year's resolutions, right? Yeah, sure. Robbo and I have been talking through on the show here about the stats and the stats are pretty dramatic in terms of people who by now in February have failed in the resolutions. In your mind, why is, it, why is the failure rate so high? Well, there are lots of reasons why New Year's resolutions fail. Uh, look, I, they're kind of a bit like babies. They're kind of fun to make and it's, you know, it's exciting, <laughs> new, uh, look, extremely difficult to maintain. Uh, so you, you think when, when a lot of people actually set resolutions, it tends to be kind of at the, the start of the year and you kind of, yes, I'm this year and, you know, I'm going to get fit this year, I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to read more, with, spend more time with the family, floss, focus on uh, important rather than urgent things, plan better, travel, you, you name it. They kind of come up with this laundry list of things that they want to do. Yeah. Often they're way, way too ambitious uh, and, and, and they're not necessarily clear on what exactly they're trying to do anyway. Uh, so, look, I think that's one of the main reasons that they're too ambitious, trying to do too much at once. I think the other big thing, too, is there's not a big enough why. So, uh, you know, people have habits and routines and many of which they've held on to for, for a long time. So if you're going to break out of a habit and, and install a new one, then the benefits uh, need to be greater than – the benefits of changing need to be greater than, uh, I guess, keeping the habit got and most people you know don't put the work in to make the change and and to me what the really sad thing is that people think you need to make resolutions you get one chance start of the year to do it if you miss that change boat yeah then yeah. you kind of wait for the following january to set the next lot of years resolutions and usually it's just a repeat of year before. Hey Blake, I'm interested sure. in something you said at the beginning of what you just said was you talked about how we always do it at the beginning of the year. Do you reckon when we set our personal New Year's resolutions, we should actually think about doing it later in the year? Because when you stop and think about it, you go back to work in January and your boss has got a new set of goals. In your personal life, your partner or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever, they've got a set of goals that they want to achieve as a family unit or whatever. There's all these other goals that we have to think about and think about how we're going to achieve and we actually don't give ourselves time to worry about our own personal ones. In regards to the um, uh, when you should set them, look, I mean, that's going to uh, depend on each person and when it makes sense. So yep. uh, 
I think you do have to consider key stakeholders. So if you're setting goals for yourself and you're part of a family unit, you need to consider what, what, the, what you're trying to do as a family. Similarly mm. at work, you know, you might have dreams and goals of what you want to achieve. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it needs to be aligned with what, what the business is trying to achieve if you're not the head of the business. So you do need to consider some of those stakeholders. So uh, I, I, I firmly believe that if you're going to actually set uh, New Year's resolutions, uh, that you really want to make sure that you're doing it at a time where you've got enough headspace and, and you can really think these things through rather than just, you know, first couple of weeks going, right, setting all these New Year's resolutions and then not setting them properly, not thinking it through and then ultimately failing. And that's why so many people, they'll set their resolutions one year, maybe they'll do it the next year, but, but usually by the third or fourth year, a lot of people don't even bother setting resolutions because they know they're not going to keep them anyway. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. I'm just going to sort of break this down. I'm just going to break it down a little bit to how you opened this, Blake, is that one of the things you said at the start was they're too vague and not specific enough. Yep. And I heard a guy in, on a, another podcast early in January and he said, this year I'm going to listen to a TED speech from TED.com Every day, I'm going to listen to one TED conference speech. They're 18 minutes. I can afford that. That's going to be my investment. That's my resolution. And I thought, after I heard that, I thought, you know, that's really cool. I could do that because it's specific. It's learning. And the difference that I thought with what this guy said is people say, I want to learn more. I want to read more books. But if you read two, that could be one more than last year. But when he said, I want to get specific and say, I want to watch a TED speech each day, every day of the year, 365, it's a yes or a no, I did it. And you, I heard a great saying by James Clear or one of those guys that said, never miss two days in a row. So you may miss one day because of commitments to family, but never miss two days. Do you find that in your sessions and clients that that's an important part of it? Oh, look, absolutely. I think the clearer you are, the more power that resolution has. So, uh, as you say, I mean, if, if people are vague, you know, what do they say? Vague vague goals produce vague results. So, the clearer you are on exactly what you want to achieve and also being clear on the reasons why you want to achieve it, and that needs to be compelling reasons, then you're setting yourself up for success. Uh, so, I mean, for, for me, the 365 days, Ted, look, I love TEDx Talks and I think it's fantastic. But would I set that as a resolution for myself? I wouldn't <clears throat> because I don't have a strong enough uh, why to do it. No, would I commit right. to maybe three times a week? Then that's getting kind of more in the ballpark for someone like me. Like one of the resolutions I set this year, so I got a Fitbit uh, and I said, look, look minimum 10,000 steps every day. Yep. And the great thing with technology these days, they're really good at tracking uh, your progress and they can upload it to your phone or computers and the like. Uh, and you've either achieved it or you haven't, but it really does set some really good momentum around what you're trying to do. So I think that's also a good tip as well is use technology wisely when it comes to, you know, uh, achieving your resolutions. Something else you said at the start, which I completely agree with is you said we set too many do you find a lot of the times that in the corporate world when setting out these plans 
and particularly <laughs> for this conversation on resolutions, that we don't hammer into the one most important thing to make it happen, but we have too many? Oh, look, definitely. I mean, I worked with a, a client today that uh, when I first started working with them three years ago, they had that exact problem. They were trying to do too much and, and setting goals and strategies. It's uh, one big part of that is choosing what not to do. Uh, and uh, too many times it's kind of like, yes, we can do this, we can do that. And, and it's just like, well, you know, you've got limited time, money, energy, resources. So where, what is going to give us the biggest return of, our, of those things and what is going to set it, you know, help us succeed this year but also set us up for future success? And, uh, yeah, I, I believe in when it comes to setting your goals that you really – should focus in on well what is the absolute priority one yeah, if you miss yeah, every other yeah. goal this year what is the, yeah. the absolute critical one not to say you shouldn't set other goals and i think companies need to set goals uh that are balanced so you need to set them in marketplace workplace uh workplace which is kind of operations your people and of course your financial outcomes you need to set them in all those areas so it's balanced but you also need to be aware of what what are the key goals that's going to make the biggest difference uh to the business both this year and also for future success. When um, I heard Tim Ferriss, whose podcast is excellent, and his books are obviously New York Times bestsellers, and he is a lifestyle designer, and his belief is that when you're making resolutions or setting any goals, there has to be some reward at the end of it. So it's either going to be a great risk where if you don't do it, there's a big downside. So if you don't achieve this, then I, you, you tell your friends, if I don't achieve this, this goal, I will give $1,000 to this charity. So there's something on the line on the downside. But then the upside is if I achieve this resolution that I'm going to reward myself with, is that something that you sort of buy into or you use with your private clients you're working with? Is this sort of risk-reward associated to resolution? Oh, look, it's definitely a motivator. There's no question about it because if you have benefits for, for doing something, uh, then you're more likely to do it. Uh, mm. And, of course, if you feel that there's going to be a risk and something, you know, really bad if you don't achieve it, then that's going to be a motivating force. But I, I would say that it's only part of it. So when I think about momentum, and if you're trying to maintain momentum towards achieving your goals, uh, I use something, I created something called the five-star model, which uh, basically each letter in five-star uh, stands for a word, and, uh, and the R component of that is rewards and recognition. So, um, you know, if you feel rewarded and recognised for achieving something, that's a motivating force. But the five star, the other parts are important too. So the F is for fun. If something's fun, it's easy to get it done. So the more fun you can make, make something, the better. The I is for inspiration. So little daily doses of inspiration are, uh, are important. Uh, so that could be a TEDx clip video, uh, some some music or whatever it is just to or it could be a, a, a great book but it's that sort of thing that can help you know fire you up when trying to achieve your goals the v's being is basically vision so the clearer you are on what you're trying to achieve the better ease for energy so without energy you're not going to achieve much so you've really got to harness energy and eat the right foods and get exercise and all the rest of it to to make sure you've got good energy to support the achievement of your goals the s is for support so 
uh, if I join a gym, I'm probably more likely to join the gym if I've got a gym partner, a gym buddy or something like that. So if you've got some support for the achievement of your goals, it's, uh, it's certainly going to help. T's for tracking. So it's really important to track your progress over time. And this is where a lot of people and a lot of organisations get unstuck. Uh, I mean, I was working with a, a, a client today. Uh, three years ago when I started working with them, they were um, – you know, they, they weren't very good at tracking uh, some, some key measures of their success uh, and they certainly weren't tracking them uh, frequent enough. So I think tracking your progress is really important for you to know if you're on course, off course, and if you are off course so you can make quick course corrective actions to get you back on track. A is for action. So if you, if you fall down or you miss a day or whatever happens, it means that you can you can put actions in place quickly to get to to move you in a positive direction towards your goals. And as I said before, the the rewards and recognition is the R, uh, and that's another important component as well. So, to your to your point to your question, yes, I think rewards and in what else, what Tim Ferriss said as well was around risk risk of not achievement. I think they are powerful motivators, but they're not the only motivators. And those other areas that I mentioned, which I, I include in a model called the five star model, I think really give you a, a nice rounded approach. And it will be different for each person as to how how important each uh, area is. For some people, if it's not fun, they just won't do it. And for others, it's like if they don't have the, the support of their family or their friends, it's going to be very, very difficult. Not to say they can't do it or achieve certain things, but it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful motivating factor and, uh, you know, it really makes a difference to whether or not you can maintain momentum or not. Do you have, just as an aside, Blake, do you have that as a one-pager or is there somewhere that we could reference with that five-star so we could send people to get more details on that? Do you have it somewhere? I do. It's in my book, Bullseye, but I can I can send it to you in a one-pager if you like. I have no problem sharing that kind of thing. So let's do that. I'll, I'll just set it up because I think that's a good thing because we'll, we'll point to the book and um, – We'll get that one pager from you. Blake, yeah. I, I think I, I like that five-star idea. Where where can people get a hold of that? Um, well, look, a lot of bookstores carry Bullseye. Uh, it's published by Wiley, so that's the largest nonfiction publisher in the world. So uh, so it's in a lot of bookstores. It's on Amazon uh, as, a, as an e-book. Um, so, I mean, there's, you know, basically if you just do a, a search for Bullseye, the ultimate guide to achieving your goals, uh, you should be able to find it that way. But um, but as I say, I'm happy to, to share with you the, the five-star model. Uh, and the reason why I built it at the time was because there just wasn't any momentum, body, momentum model that really resonated with me. And also, uh, you need models that are really simple, simple, easy to use. And that's what I set out to create. And it's certainly, I know a number of people, well, lots and lots of people who, who use it and uh, get, get a lot of benefit from it. Well, let's get that from you. We'll put that in the show notes and also load it onto our Facebook page to share because I think that's a great model for people to look at and emulate in terms of their own resolutions. But one thing, just to close off, one thing that I thought was really powerful there was talking about the right support or having the right people around you. And I wrote a blog post maybe late last year and my question for well, our Mojo Radio Show audience or the people who read The Espresso, my blog is who's in your corner? Like you think about any great fighter, 
any great sports person, any great achiever, somebody running for prime minister, president, they've always got really good counsel around them. The people in their corner who, when things are going really well, they're there to celebrate and cheer with you. When things aren't going so well and the wheels fall off, they're there to pick you up and say, how do we get you back on the horse again? It sounds like that's, that's an important part of your process, isn't it? Like we need those cheerleaders to help us through, either to celebrate or to pick us up and put us back in the right place in order to achieve our resolution. A hundred percent, yeah. Having a positive support network can make a huge difference when it comes to you trying to achieve your goals, both in a personal sense but also in the workplace. Uh, and, you know, I've worked with the Australian swimming team. I've also worked with long-term unemployed, people who are 20-plus years unemployed. And, you know, you can quickly see the difference in support networks for the Australian swimming team versus those who have been out of, out of work for a long time. And, and uh, you know, it's, and that's, that's, a, that's across the board. So can you achieve great things without support? You can. It's just an awful lot harder. It's a very good point, my friend. Could you just one last thing before we go? You mentioned having a strong why, and I'm a great believer in that. How do you know you have the right why? Well, that, that's a very, very good question. Uh, it's, it's got to really resonate with you in terms of the, the benefits. If you can see, if you think about the end result, what do you see, what do you hear, what do you feel? And if you see and hear and feel really, really positive about yourself and you're willing to put in the work, put in the effort to get to that, which a lot of people aren't, let's face it. But if you're willing to do that work, then that sets you up for success. So there's actually an, another model uh, that I developed uh, a while back called Habit Shift. And basically that is, uh, it's quite simple. So every habit that you have, there is a, a, a habit payoff. There's a reason why you do it, otherwise you wouldn't do it. And then you kind of a ritual and you kind of go through it. Now for you to change or shift that habit, you need A, a strong reason reason or reasons to change. Secondly, you need to believe you can change. So the whole belief side of things, so some people don't lose weight, for example, because they believe they can't because they've tried so many times previously and that belief side of things is really important. So you need a reason to change. You need to believe you can change. You need to take action, right, positive action. Uh, and the, the, the interesting one that uh, I didn't get for a long time, which I, is really important, is what I call focus at critical times. So as an example, uh, if someone was trying to give up smoking, they may have strong reasons to change, such as their partner died of lung cancer or, or, or um, their dad died of emphysema and they know it's in the family. So it's like, okay, I know I need to change. They may have some belief they can change. They may be taking some actions, but the focus at critical times is where they get unstuck. So if others are going out to smoke uh, during a, a work break or whatever and they use that as a stress reliever, they can switch their mind off to, oh, okay, I need a stress relief, and they will completely focus out 
go and have a cigarette. But then at other times they'll focus in on, oh, yes, I really should should quit uh, smoking. It's not good for me. So that's kind of the habit shift model. You need all those four pieces working together. And to get the strong reasons to change, you've really got to list them. You've got to really think about, you know, what is this going to do for me? How's it going to benefit? And the other end of the spectrum is if I don't do it, if I don't make this change, what is going to go wrong? So if I think about the smoking one for exa- as an example, if, if I was a smoker and I wanted to, I really wanted to quit, go into a hospital, go talk to people with lung cancer, go see people that experience some real pain. So it's a whole pain pleasure principle. So if you, you have enough, you associate enough pain to a particular habit and enough pleasure with doing something, something that's better for you, then it really does help you get, uh, I guess, momentum towards changing and shifting that habit. I had a similar problem like that recently with the Tim Tams, and yeah. uh, I took yeah, up the chocolate. Common one. Yeah, well, I took up the chocolate Monty's instead. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. So I mean, they're, they're, they're <laughs> actually, I was thinking about that, Robbo. If you if you took on Blake's ten thousand steps a day, I figure it's ten <laughs> steps from the console at the panel there to the fridge, to the Tim Tam jar. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty close. Not now, far. if yes. you did that a thousand times a day, you'd that's have, a lot of trips. You'd have ten thousand. You'd have ten thousand steps, my friend. I'm no. just wondering what you mean by e. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that, it's interesting you say that though, because so many people they do shift one bad habit for another. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of like, yep, I'm not going to smoke anymore. Great, I'm going to yeah. eat instead, and they yeah. just pack on the pounds. Yeah. So Absolutely. it's kind of you know, there's certain needs that that we all have. So it's mm. you, you you really want, and it's. It's not always easy to come up with a healthier, better way of doing things. Mm. But um, uh, what I also find interesting is when people say to you, it takes 21 days to change a habit or it takes 42 days to uh, change a habit. I've seen some research that suggests that. Mm. Uh, It actually doesn't. It it does not take that length of time because I've known some people who have had a 20-year habit Mm. and they've changed it in a heartbeat, in a second. Why? Because... The why to change has been so strong because something, something extremely powerful or a life-changing event has happened. So they've just gone, right, no more, that's it, I'm not doing this. And they just completely stop. So, you know, it depends on the habit, depends on the person. But, uh, but for you to, to make any type of positive change, you've just got to put the right things in place. You've got to believe you can change, have a strong enough why you need to change, take action and and really focus in the right way at the critical times. Gary, I reckon there's about a good 25 minutes worth of gold in all that, don't you? Yeah, I reckon there's, uh, there's a I wouldn't, I wouldn't say 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think there might be one or two minutes that you go, oh, but the, the rest, you know. Well, my stuff on Tim Tams was pretty good, let's be honest. <laughs> true, true. Yes, that was up there. Absolutely. And, uh, like. Thanks for coming back, buddy. Always nice to chat to you. Glad things are good in your world. Um, We will put your website details into the show notes. We will load up the uh, Blake's five-star model for people to have a look at. Um, And we will put a link to Bullseye into the show notes as well. People can click through and check out. Thanks, mate, for your time. Good good catching up, buddy. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Robbo. It's halftime on the Mojo Show. And time to pause. 
for a cause. Hi, this is Graham Cowan. I'm a director of Are You OK? And do you believe that caring conversations can change a life? And more importantly, caring conversations can change an organisation. I'd strongly encourage you to consider coming along to two events we're running in Melbourne and Sydney. These events are called Conversational Leadership, Inspiring People, Inspiring Change. Melbourne is the morning of March the 4th and Sydney the morning of March 18. You can find details at the website, ruok.org.au forward slash CL2016, as in Conversational Leadership 2016, so CL2016. The Mojo Radio Show. Jeez, I like Blake. He's a good man. He's, he's a, a good great man. man. He's, he's such fun to talk to. I really enjoy our chats. He's a nice guy. And his, I think coming up in April is his next Pay It Forward Day, folks. And this is an event that Blake started, and it's just like the movie where you do something nice for somebody else, and then in return they pass it on to somebody else. It's coming mm. up in April. It's a global now initiative. He's the man behind it, but uh, he's a good mate of ours, and I think uh, it's really good good to catch up and hear he's going so well. Absolutely. And um, I, while we were chatting there, he sent through his um, his his pages from his book. Uh, and they're well worth a look at. So make sure you jump onto our Facebook page and uh, and have a look at those because they're they're well worth a look, aren't they, mate? That's Blake Biddy's Five Star Principles, mm. which we talked about, but it's actually good having it in a hard copy. I think you'll find it very beneficial, folks. Now, I've got a pop quiz for you, Hotshot. Go. What does Matthew McConaughey, mm. Anne Hathaway, mm. Christina Aguilera, mm. Bill Clinton... Kobe Bryant from the Lakers. Yeah. World champion tennis player Novak Djokovic. Yeah. Uh, world champion golfer Phil Mickelson. Jessica Biel. Mm, there is a guy, Jessica Biel, I know. <laughs> and two-time heavyweight UFC fighting champion Frank Meyer have in common. Whoa. Uh, okay, I'll have a guess. They're all glutards. They're all glutards, uh, very wealthy. (laughs) But the reason I bring this up is because all of these very successful celebrities Mm. are paleo eaters. Oh, really? Now, we're not going to delve too far into it. There is a point with where I'm going with this. But Mm. the whole idea of paleo is that you eat in line with paleolithic times of prehistoric man that really lived on catching his own protein. So he'd catch some sort of wild beast, he'd drag it back to his den, he'd have that, he'd collect berries, he'd have nuts, he would eat veggies, fruit and so on. So that's the whole gist of the paleo without, uh, without getting into it too deeply. Now, the reason this story got me is because all these people are super successful. Mm. You know, top of their game in music or sport or like heavyweight UFC fighting is pretty serious, but they're all paleo, but they all started their journey into health and wellness by going into veganism and or vegetarianism. Right, okay. And pretty much every one of them said they did that for a while, but they felt sluggish, they felt (laughs) tired, they didn't have clarity of thought. So they added some protein, like high-quality animal protein, like Mm. grass-fed, grass-finished beef or lamb and or fish uh, in their diet and a lot of them now credit the success of what they're doing, their performance. 
um, into having a stricter diet around paleo. And particularly people like um, Bill Clinton, who, of course, was very sick with a life-threatening heart problem. Mm. He turned his health after following his wife Hillary onto the paleo movement. Uh, and Novak Djokovic, who is one of the best tennis players in the world, he said, quote-unquote, that he credits the diet change, especially eliminating gluten, with helping him reach the top of his game. So he is the top-ranked player, tennis player in the world, and he credits a lot of it down to getting rid of gluten and going with the paleo lifestyle. So I just thought it was a great story. Yeah. Uh, I think anyone listening to it should just do their own research. I think it's worth experimenting with. But there are more and more people who are moving back to having the right quality proteins as part of their diet, avoiding gluten, becoming a glutard, avoiding sugars and processed foods, and it does make a heck of a lot of difference. And if a guy like Frank Meyer, who's you know two-time heavyweight champion of the world, can go down this track and perform at the next level of you know peak performance... Um, I think there's a lot, lot to be said about this. It's, it's yeah, worth absolutely. considering, folks. Hey, you know the other thing? If, um, if Hillary Clinton makes it into office later this year, we'll have President Paleo. We will. President, <laughs> I think it would be called Presidential Paleo. Presidential Paleo. She could write, she could write her own cookbook. <laughs> oh, there will be. Don't worry about that. There will be if she gets in. Indeed. i tell you what, if Trump makes it in, Oh, don't start. And Trump's on patio. <laughs> I can guarantee there'll be a mini series, a movie, a book. There'll be paleo ties. There'll be paleo suits. We'll there'll have- be a. There'll be a paleo resort and a paleo golf course. And we'll have an offspring of Miss Universe. We'll have Miss Paleo Universe. Miss Paleo Universe. Miss Global Paleo Universe. Isn't that funny? Now, you said you found something on the food thing before we jump into our second guest today. What do you got? Just on the back of you, just a quick one, just on the back of you talking about that. Um, Glioblastoma multiforme is is a a really aggressive type of brain cancer. Um, And unfortunately for patients who are diagnosed, they rarely live beyond 50 15 months uh, of post-diagnosis. And there's been some studies done. I'm getting this off a a website called the Olive Oil Times, but they credit the Journal of Nutritional Biochemistry as their source for this. So it has some... It does hold some weight. Um, they've, mm. been, they've been looking at um, the effects of extra virgin olive oil on this type of cancer in, in, the, um, in the laboratory. And they've actually shown uh, through testing that it actually slows down the reproduction of these cells and can extend the life of patients who are stricken with it. So, um, so yeah, look, I just found it really interesting. And, and of course, you know, um, high quality olive oil, extra virgin olive oil is what they would be talking about. Um, but, um, look, we'll post it up in the show notes. And, and if, if you think it can have some effect on your life, then, um, then it's certainly worth a look. And, and look, the other health benefits of extra virgin olive oil are widely known anyway. So let's face it, guys, even if you haven't been diagnosed with something that, you know, insidious, you know, it's well worth a, uh, a couple of drops or, a, you know, a couple of tablespoons in your food every day. Well, that's the thing. I think it ties back to the previous story that if you are going down the track of some of these celebs and this is not a, paleo is not a new thing, but people who are on the paleolithic type diet would be using lots of extra virgin olive oils mm. and coconut oils only because of the richness and the quality of the fats that they can use for a fuel source rather than burning sugars and carbs and stuff. So, I mean, it ties back to the whole little segment here is that, um, you know what, olive oil tastes great. Extra virgin olive mm. oil is delicious. Mm. Stick it on your 
eggs, stick it on your salads, Absolutely. you know, rub your grass-fed beef with it before you put the barbecue. It's all good. It's Absolutely. All good. Yeah, look at the list of cancers just quickly. I've just looked up while we've been talking. Um, prevents a variety of cancers such as colorectal, prostate, lung, endometrial, and breast cancer, just to name a couple. So there you go. You're doing yourself a big favor. I'd say, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Olive oil's not the worst thing in the world to be putting on your salads and your veggies and mm. stuff, and it tastes good. So why wouldn't you? Absolutely. So listen, uh, I don't get to play this very often, but we've got a... It's a Mojo Show Double, double shot, shot Monday. Hit me with your best shot. So uh, we've got someone else to have a chat to, right? We had an email sent to us by a very loyal Mojo Radio Show listener from mm. down in Victoria. Mm. Uh, Link has been a long-time listener and uh, is not a first-time caller. He's been in contact with us a number of times to say good day and, and credit us, which is nice. Link sent me a note and said, you should talk to Rick McCaig and Adam Fleming. Now, they are from the Bendigo Southeast Secondary College. Mm. They run athlete development at the college. Mm. Now, the reason that this was so interesting is because the Australian Cricket Association and the performance director of the British Cycling Program in London have both been in contact and are looking at what these guys are doing in their sports program with the kids at the school and adapting it and taking those ideas back to the Australian cricket team, British Cycling and so on. Now, both of those organisations are at the top of their game. So when someone's coming out and taking tips and tools and hints and think these guys got something to offer... Link thought they would be a great guest or guests to have on the show. So we're delighted to have you here. Well, welcome to the show, boys. Yeah, thanks very much for having us, Gary. Morning, thank you. Tell us about that that program. What is it? The principal uh, is a big believer in sport as an educational tool uh, and the impacts that can have on children, uh, both physically, socially, emotionally as well. So we've built a, a very good network of coaches locally um, that have come on board at the school. Last year, we ran a pilot program of 60 kids based on Maribyrnong Sports Academy in Melbourne. Uh, and that program has been going for about seven years now. And we've had a lot of support from them, but we've, we've introduced a student-athlete program um, into the school now as a subject. Um, the students are participating in a personalised program tailored to them and their sport uh, that, that runs before school and during school. Uh, and the impact that's having on, on not only the school community, um, but also um, on, on the sporting community nationally and now internationally with our recognition has been quite outstanding and something we probably didn't anticipate we'd get to in, in, at, this, at this rate. Um, but look, it's, it's a really driving, uh, driving force for these kids. We're finding kids that have a passion in a certain area. For us, it's sport. Um, it's engaging them at school. It's having a big impact on their behaviour and their attendance and also their grades. So all of our kids now are above a credit at school. Um, they're happy kids um, and, and they're surrounded by like-minded kids and excelling in, in a number of areas. So that's an exciting program to be a part of. So my understanding is they have to hit certain marks in their grades and they're quite, you've actually raised the bar in that area as well academically, guys. Um, what's been the reaction from the kids to say, well, you have to get your marks? Yeah, amazing reaction from the kids. And what we're finding is the kids are actually driving that now and they're driving that culture. Um, so this year we had 100 places available and we had 400 kids apply, not only from the school, but actually quite quite far away from, from Bendigo, in fact. Um, but they're wanting, they're wanting that culture now. They're wanting that standard. Um, and they're actually driving that. They're, um, which is really pleasing. So there's a big leadership program. We have student leaders in every year level um, and they're setting that culture. So it's a, it is a student-led program as much as anything else. Um, but look, it, we can be quite selective too at that, at that, at that time. Again, having the 
having the amount of applications coming into the school, we can set some pretty high standards. Um, and then we're getting these high-achieving kids uh, around each other, and that's really supporting each and, each and all the athletes to, to really pursue their goals. Do you follow them throughout their leave, guys? Like, once they leave the college, have you been doing it long enough now to see what happens once these students leave your grounds? Yeah, another great question. It's, there's one gap in our program at the moment, um, and that's the VCE years, years 11 and 12. And comparative mm. to, to Maribyrnong, they have a um, year 7 to 12 school. We only go to year 10. Um, however, because of the support or the, the success this year, we've brought on what's called an alumni program starting next year. And we offer that to our year 10s and basically saying for a, for a subsidised um, fee, a nominal fee, we, we want to make our gym and our coaches and our programs available to you uh, for the next two years or while you're still at VCE. And um, we said that to our year 10s and we really had every year 10 put their hand up to want to be a part of that. Uh, in the end, we, we've only taken a select group. Um, but I think given our proximity to the VCE school in Bendigo, the ease of transport in Bendigo, and also the connection we have with the kids through our local sporting clubs. Um, they're jumping at that opportunity to stay engaged, which is not only great for them, but, but also giving back to our program and mentoring our younger athletes as well. Is the same principles being fed back to the teachers, do you think? Oh, definitely. Uh, the school has a really uh, strong culture. Adam mentioned the leadership at the school and the leadership from the students, it's the same with the teachers and the teachers are expected to to lead the way and lead by example and that reflects right down through every program. Cricket Australia have shown an interest in your program and I also was told that Shane Sutton, who is the Performance Director of British Cycling, has endorsed the program, has also um, had a good look at what you're doing and is quite interested. What are they seeing in your program that's making them so interested? Well, from uh, from Shane Sutton's point of view, uh, I'll let Adam talk about the cricket, but uh, they both said, they've both seen the same thing. As I mentioned before, it's that high-performance culture. Basically, what we're doing is we're um, initiating these students into a high-performance uh, environment. And uh, if we can develop those routines and, and someone like British Cycling can see that it that a student or a cyclist that's come through this program already has that instilled in them, well, uh, you know, half their work's done because I, I know Shane quite well. He uh, he saw some of the footage that I sent to him and had a chat to him on the phone about it. Um, he was just super impressed by it uh, because it's just it's exactly what they're trying to do. You know, they're finding those little gains, that those 1% percenters that you can find in, in, uh, in your sporting um, training or your achievements and, uh, you know, we're already planting that seed for these kids, they're, they're halfway there, as I said. And, and also, it's that other stuff that we link to the, the education side of it. I know Cricket Australia, we're actually very impressed at how we're tracking the workload and the well-being of the students as well. So we're yeah, not just getting yeah. them in here and training them and thrashing them. We're actually uh, making sure that they're, um, you know, managing themselves and learning about themselves and managing their workload. We identify when they're maybe a bit emotional or a bit tired and, and things like that. So it's a... It's a a full program. It's not just something that we put together, um, you know. And even though it's only, you know, two years old, not even two years old, we've um, made a lot of inroads into into that high performance culture. If I took you out of the school, boys, and I put you into a corporate environment, what would be the first couple of things that you guys would do to introduce a high performance culture into a business? Yeah, it's a great question, and we yeah we were certainly forced with or faced with that one at the start of the year. Um, for me, coming in, um, if I just talk about two big things, it's people and processes. I guess for us, 
Um, so it's first of all identifying the people that you need and the qualities in those people that you're looking for and the people that can represent the vision that you've got. So you need passionate people, mm. committed people um, is the first and foremost um, most important thing. And then it's getting your processes right. So it's being very clear from the outset uh, where you're heading, um, why you're doing it is the other big important one. And if you can really get that motivation right and that understanding right of why you're there and you can get that across to your team and get your team to really buy into that, um, then it's very easy to motivate those people around you. And in our case, our students, we have we have five amazing staff members here that, that really live it and believe it. Um, and that filters straight through the whole group. I'm interested in, you, you mentioned parents in there. Um, I, I actually coach a couple of rugby teams, my kids' local club team, and I also coach the, the area's rep team. Um, parents, I find, run the gamut from those parents who want to stand on the sideline and, and the first ones to jump in and say, do you want a hand, ranging all the way through to those parents who decide that rugby training and Saturday morning or Sunday morning rugby is really just a nursery-minding service. And, and, and that also has an influence on, on the kids. Do you find that sometimes more than managing the kids, you've actually got to manage the parents? Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I guess where there's a probably a little bit difference in the environment between a Saturday you know, morning team club-based environment and ours. Um, you, you're probably forced to have to take all the kids that come through your door and, uh, and, and support participation at a club level. Uh, we can be a little bit more selective. And, and the way we go about it is getting the parents involved right from the word go, and that's, in, that's involved in the selection process. Um, so we do that so the parents are uh, fully aware of our process and fully aware of our requirements. And we get them to sign off on all the application forms and all the, all the requirements um, coming through our selection process. We also do induction nights, um, information nights prior to, to handing out any offers. So um, we feel like we've communicated and we've met all the parents before they come in. And then uh, with our tracking tool, our community, computer tracking tool that all kids have access to also goes to the parents. So the parents are quite engaged in their development and their process. Um, we have reporting processes as well. Um, but also, we're also available on a daily basis too. So we do really um, encourage communication with the parents. Um, sometimes it doesn't always work. Um, but again, we, we sort of understand that, like it or not, the, the parents are going to be the most influential person in that student-athlete's um, development. So we, we really need to put time and effort into working with them. Rick, you mentioned before, which I loved, you talked about the one percenters. Um, what has been a one percenter that you have implemented, say, in the last couple of months that's had a profound impact? Oh, for me, you know, when I'm working with the cycling kids, um, let's say it's an indoor session we're doing, it, you know, it might be just something that I've picked up on them uh, during an effort. I'll say instead of, uh, instead of looking around everywhere, try and just focus on um, the data that's in front of you, you know, or don't have a conversation through through your efforts, or don't don't uh, sit up on top of the handlebars uh, in between, you know, when you're resting after an effort or that. So there's there's so many things, and it's just they're just things that are on the run for me. You can see see a student athlete who is just doing one little thing that you think you can improve, and you hit him with that, and you keep uh, referring to that, and you know, all of a sudden they've got that, and you can move to something else. It's great. I think it's such. A brilliant program to be teaching kids to think through this through. And the other thing you said before, which I thought was terrific, was helping them understand workload and well-being. Because typically, you know, Robbo and I in our day was just do as much as you can, as hard as you can, and hope you got something left on game day. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You said you're really educating, and and the reason I asked the question is because one of the biggest issues we had a guy on the program not, not long ago who talked about uh, stress in the workplace and one in five workers 
are suffering from some sort of mental health or anxiety, depression because of stress. 95% of our illness supposedly now from research from Stanford comes from stress. Teaching kids at this age to manage it and to understand it before they get to elite levels of sport and or, you know, business and life in general, I think is fantastic. What are you, what are you doing with these kids to help them not just understand it, but to do it? To, to know that the, the recovery, the downtime is an important ingredient for their performance and their life. What sorts of things are you taking the kids through? Because I think a lot of adults need to hear it for their own world. Yeah, look, that's a great question. Um, I came into this program uh, when I finished my sporting background. I, I got into healthcare and I, I worked in hospital for about 10 years. And so I, I really jumped at the opportunity for this because I, I do see it as healthcare for kids and it's, and it's an opportunity to use sport as an educational tool to, for kids to learn those social wellbeing, emotional um, and physical uh, habits that are going to lead to long, sustainable, healthy lives. So um, we, we do, we give them uh, exposure to a lot of different areas and a lot of different opportunities. We have sports psychs visit, we have physiotherapists visit, we have had GPs visit to talk to the kids. We have a professional development curriculum that's based a lot around sports psychology and emotional intelligence. Um, the kids are doing a lot of self-aware stuff through visualisation, um, there's some meditation, a lot of reflection, um, but we do talk about sport as only one part of their life. We don't want these kids mm. to basically identify themselves as only athletes. It's uh, being an athlete is just one small part of what makes them as a person, and we're, we're very focused on, on all all parts of that person, knowing that um, they've got a big future ahead of them. And and look, the, we know the data: less than one percent generally transition into having a professional sports career. So. If these kids can basically, uh, if they can make that sports career great, but if they can go on and to help others or to have successful lives and careers and and uh, and, and basically be healthy and happy, um, I mean that's a great outcome for our program. It's fantastic, boys. I think this uh, this stuff, and I think also the the work you're doing with the girls in sport and that program has that been a bit of a surprise with the number of girls that are interested in playing your crickets and soccer and so on. Was that a bit of a surprise to you guys? Uh, probably not a surprise. I, I had a fair um, background at the school before I came in, so I sort of knew the numbers. I'm, I've been surprised at the growth of the school, um, but yeah. it's certainly towards some sports. I think if we look at it uh, objectively, possibly the girls are more successful than the boys with our sport teams, um, and I think that's because we have such a high participation rate and we, we're able to compete in everything. Um, so we've had success at state level in, in a number of sports, in soccer, in cricket, uh, in athletics, um, which, is, which is absolutely fantastic, and that's driving other girls in the school to, to, to take part. So they are, they are leaders in sport. Um, it's, it's fantastic for them. It's fantastic for our program. One, one hesitation we might have had coming into this program were, was were the girls going to want to lift weights in the gym and, and do resistance training and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And we've mm. actually got uh, 50-50 split in the gym with boys and girls, and the girls are, the girls pick it up quicker than the boys in year seven and year eight. I think, <laughs> I, think through, I think through development and flexibility, uh, they, they actually get it quicker. So um, it's good fun. It's good fun. Do you use those stats to motivate the boys? <laughs> uh, they, they don't need motivation uh, the girls are showing them up all the time the girls are far more uh, willing to uh, give, give things a go uh, yeah. they, they generally uh, by you know, year nine girls are usually lifting more than the boys um, and as Adam said the, the development the fle- and their flexibility uh, you know, generally outweighs uh, what the boys can do so you know, it's, it's motivating for them I think that they, they're out lifting the boys and the boys then you know, they work harder because they want to catch up with the girls so. guys I'd, I'd like to try something with you just if you just picture probably your most 
let's say your most troublesome student, okay? In, in your mind's eye, look five years down the track and tell me what you hope would be the best outcome from that for them from coming through, you know, your, your course. I think for me with my role, I do get to see a few more of the challenging, um, the challenging kids and there's a lot of feel-good stories and, and I guess that's why you do the job. And, and one, one that does come to mind was a girl from last year in year nine that, that at the time um, come from a very underprivileged background, never had an opportunity or access to play sport, but we certainly saw a talent uh, there and we got involved in our program. And I think without our program, she certainly would have dropped out of school in year 10. Um, she would have probably made some choices she regretted and probably be in a different place than she is now. But I think in five years' time, she's, uh, she actually went on in year 10 to win a in athletics. Uh, she was our sports star of the year in year 10, and she's actually part-time employed with us. So she's doing her VCE. Um, she's, she's on the right track. She's moved out of a difficult situation at home into a more of a positive environment. And I, my hope for her is that she'll be the first in her family to complete a, a tertiary degree. So mm. that would be the best outcome, I think, for, for that kid. Brilliant. There you go, Gary. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, boys, what Robbo is really saying is that uh, it's a too late for him to enroll in the Indigo <laughs> Southeast Secretary College. I think he wants to go through the sport. Do you do program. rugby union, boys? <laughs> Talk of troubled child. Classic. <laughs> well, this has been um, this has been very interesting, boys. I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. I thank Link for putting us in touch with you, and um, I hope this does spread to more scholastically around Australia, I think it's scholastically around the world that we can take great learnings from what you're doing. I think what's most comforting is the the fact that, you know, you and the other guys, you know, the rubber hits the road where you are, you have been successful in the sports and in wellness and in, in education. But it's interesting that the, the passion and interest and desire, the direction, the strength comes through in talking to you, and I think that uh, it's obviously working for the kids, and I think it's terrific. Yeah, no, we think it's great too, and uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to to speak today. Yeah, look, we want to spread the word. We uh, we really believe in what we're doing here is uh, terrific for our students, and, and as we said, you know, it's the it's the uh, you know end of the rainbow stuff when they when they finish school. Uh, you know what they leave with from here, we believe, is uh, going to set them up you know, really well for the rest of their life. Yeah, thanks, Gary and Robbo, and, and thank you to your listeners. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to do this. If we can, in some way, inspire others to, to provide opportunities and pathways for kids to to yeah, help them with their futures, that's it's been it's been great. So, yep, I good on you guys. Keep up the great work. Good on you. Thanks very much. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Well, that is a big show indeed. I think we might just play out with something and let uh, let our listeners get on their day, huh? Yeah, something calm and sedate, shall we? How about Smells Like Teen Spirit? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it, it actually is. It's uh, it's it's Willie Nelson and, and somebody called Trigger. Do you know who Trigger is? That's Roy Rogers' horse, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's where he got the name. That's actually what Willie calls his guitar. There you go. It's in 1969, oh. Willie bought Trigger and he's still playing it today. So, so there you go. So uh, Willie plays guitar. Willie play guitar. Willie play guitar, that's right. So um, so yeah, look, going back to the musical challenge that we played last week, there's I, I, I was looking at the date and I thought we've got to play this one. This is, uh, this is Willie Nelson doing Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Cool, we're out. We tune up. Okay. Willie Nelson tuning up for Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's less dangerous 